Welcome in listeners to another wonderful episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We have two wonderful guests here to talk about a fabulous show in downtown New York City. We're back downtown with that downtown scene. Joining us today, we have the producer and lead actress, Amy Michelle Gaither, and the director, Kathy Gail McGowan, who are here to talk to us about the newest show being presented by Duende Productions. Lauren Gunderson, Emily, La Marquise du Châtelet defends her life tonight. And that is playing April 6th through uh, the 30th at the Flea Theater. You can get your tickets and more information by visiting eventbrite.com or at duendeproduction.org. Amy, Kathy, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. I hope I did not butcher that title too badly. Not badly. <laughs> but I, it, it, it's, it's a fun title, but it's an even more fun show. I was reading the synopsis, putting my notes together again earlier this morning, and it is a fascinating show that you both are putting on right now. So I want to just jump right into this. Amy, if I can start with you and have you tell our listeners a little bit about this show. So this is a play about a woman in history. Lauren Gunderson sort of specializes often in writing plays about women in history whose stories are undertold or not told. And uh, Emilie, the Marquise du Châtelet, was the first female physicist, basically, of any note. She was an 18th century French Marquise, which means she was nobility. She married nobility in France. And uh, her work, she died in childbirth, disproving Newton's laws of physics, and she had a long-term volatile affair with Voltaire, the the famous French writer and philosopher, and librettist, and playwright, and actor. <laughs> and they were together off and on for about seventeen years. She died in childbirth with another man's child, while she was in the middle of disproving and working on Newton's laws. But her work became the basis of Einstein's theory of relativity. Wow! So she's in a long line of physicists who helped pave the way for those discoveries a hundred years after she died I had no idea about that what a wonderful thing to what a wonderful story to be telling how did you come upon this work so a good friend of mine who's a director in Chicago a I, I'm guessing it's about eight years ago, came to me when I was still in Indianapolis. I was artistic director of a theater in Indianapolis. And she brought me the play and said she wanted to direct it and wanted me to act in it and asked if my company would produce it. But I was in the process of, the timing wasn't right. I was moving out of the Midwest at that time, actually coming here or coming East. And so we did. We weren't able to, to do that project with her, but we had several readings of it, and it just stuck. Um, it got under my skin, and I couldn't forget it. I couldn't let it go. It just kept coming back to me, and I kept refinding the script in my bookcase every time I moved apartments. Mm. I think I think I have to do this play. So I actually got rights to do it, and had secured a theater before the pandemic, and received the contract for the theater in 
February of 2020. And COVID was happening, it was starting, and I was getting really antsy. And I was talking to all my producer friends and saying, what's what's going to happen here and what's going on? And anyway, I didn't end up signing the contract and then everything shut down. So then it took me another three years to get the two and a half years to get the ball rolling again and get rights again and build a team and secure a theater and all of that. So here we are finally. <laughs> well, and speaking of that team, I want to bring in the director, Kathy. And I want to ask you, Kathy, what has it been like developing this show? What I love about the show is that there are historic characters who we can actually find out a lot about before we begin the rehearsal process. And there were Amelie and Voltaire and the courtiers and, and the mathematicians were all writing letters to one another in that day. Some were just gossiping about Amelie and her affair with Voltaire. She had a courtier, Madame Gravinier, living with them who wrote to Louis XIV's court, you know, and kind of listened in on the doors and just you know, back and forth about every move they made when they were living at Siri, which was Amelie's country home chateau, where she and Voltaire shacked up together and began a love affair and an intellectual affair, you know, investigating philosophy. He was writing opera, plays, and doing scientific experiments. So, so you can actually read about her life and it was documented by her and the people around her. So it's wonderful to go into a play with that research and, and finding, you know, those letters hold intimate thoughts and details of their lives. So we can bring that to the stage and go, oh, this moment is about this. And do you, did you know Voltaire, you know, had, had very bad stomach problems. And he, you know, at one point in the play, he says he's unable to make love anymore. And, you know, you read that he probably couldn't make love a lot to begin with because he had such bad <laughs> digestive. So these are, you know, issues. So these are things that we can really bring to the play and inform not what, what is only on the page, but the actors can make the characters even more more fully realized or, and it's very fun for a director. So that is part of the process that I've really enjoyed reading books about her, learning about the age of enlightenment, learning about these ideas that were coming to the forefront where people, you know, where men could actually, and women, this woman in particular could look around at their world and say, what makes this world tick? How can I, you know, create experiments around the orbits or gravity or, you know, religion or God or so it, it's, it's just wonderfully full. So that, you can see I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that sounds amazing. I yeah. love it. And, and back to you, Amy, you know, we, I mentioned in the opening, you're the producer, but you're also the lead actress in this show. What has it been like developing the role of, um, uh, I'm going to say her name wrong, Emily. I mean, this play has been published and done around the country. I think it was published in, what was it, 2009, 2010, something like that. So I'm certainly not the first person to play this role, but it's been, I don't know how to say it. I feel it's a privilege and an honor and a responsibility to represent this woman and also represent Lauren Gunderson in New York because it's, her plays are not very often done in New York. 
and and playing this role in particular, I have always, from the moment I first read the script, I felt an affinity with her. I actually got to go to Siri, her chateau in France last October and to her, where she was. And I just felt her there. I mean, if it's, it's very metaphysical for me, which is right in line with what the play is about. But because I'm at a time in my life where I'm trying to figure out what and who I want to be in this next act. I mean, if the first act of my life was my childhood and upbringing and the second act was my marriage and raising children, and now I'm in the third act, which a lot of women find themselves in at this point, I think. And the play is about a woman who is is trying to put together, she's looking back at her life from the afterlife, from the standpoint of the afterlife. But in that moment of time where she's trying to figure out how do I spend the time that I have left and what is it that I'm put here to do besides have babies and be a, a wife and be a, you know, a woman in, in her culture. But I don't think the questions are all that different for us now. Mm. And I don't, I also don't think that this is a question that only women ask themselves. I think this is a very human predicament to be in, to get to a point in your life where you realize I have this amount of energy and this amount of time and this amount of talent. And, and what is, and what is my purpose? What, what is driving me from here on? Not just accomplishment, but who do I want to be? And I, I am, I mean, I'm obsessed with that in my own life right now. And so this is, um, it's a very therapeutic playground (laughs) to be in right now. And I think if it's true for me, that it's probably true for other people. And I'm excited to experience that with an audience. That's wonderful. And what a perfect lead into my next question, which is what is the message or the thought that you're hoping audiences will take away from the show? And Amy, if I can stick with you at first on that. Well, without giving away the... Uh... The punchlines at the end of the play, uh, where she sort of comes to some sort of peace. I think that's. I think the answer to that is a couple of a couple of things. One is that it, it, it's a mythology that we can divide our our intellectual and mental life from our hearts and our guts and our humanity, and that they are all one thing and are are this idea that we have a separate spirit and a separate mind and a separate body and is you know is is a myth and that it's all important and it's all that it all become integrated as we age and and evolve and the other thing that i hope comes out of this is that asking good questions is i'm quoting one of my mentors who is madeline lingle good questions are better than are more important than fancy answers. And I think it was Rilke that said, you know, living into the questions rather than uh, different ways of saying the journey is the destination that, you know, the process is the process versus the product and it's messy and it's human and it, and our hearts get involved and, and doing that well, this is so meta for me (laughs) because it's exactly what I'm trying to tumble through right now in my own life. But yeah, I, I hope that wasn't too esoteric, but that's- no, it's, that was beautiful and a perfect, I think, example of how life imitates art, but, you know, also art imitates life. 
you, you, they both. And an example of why we need art. Like I, I need this play right now. Kathy, what is the message or thought you're hoping the audience is? Uh, um, well, I want them to ask, you know, what matters, what lasts, which is coming right out of the page. I want them to get grounded in that, in those thoughts, in their own lives and lives of others. And then I want them to become ambitious about going after what matters and what lasts, because this woman was beyond ambition. She worked all night long studying, you know, theories, writing books, dissertations on fire, doing experiments. She took care of her family. She had three children. Yes, they were educated away from her, but she was concerned about them. She took care of her husband who was okay with her, her affair with Voltaire and, and liked the idea of it. It was kind of a happy threesome. He was away a lot on military adventures, but she made sure he had appointments to the, the court of Louis XIV. And she was managing this court life, the gossip, her affair. She was managing Voltaire's mistakes. He was often writing terrible things about the king and the government, I mean, and the monarchy and being kicked out of France or hiding from people. So she was not only ambitious for herself, but she was ambitious for the people around her and she loved them all deeply. And she wanted to figure out how the universe worked and what mattered and what lasted and leave a legacy for other people to flourish in and to grow further with, you know? So that's what I want people to really kind of look around and get going <laughs> and see, see how much you can really do if you, if you embrace your passion. This show just keeps sounding better and better and better. This woman is incredible and how I've never heard about her mm. is mind blowing. I now want to ask you both, who do you hope have access to the show? And Kathy, if I can stick with you first on that. Young women, <laughs> young uh, or a young generation of people who are maybe today disenfranchised with what we've just been living with and through. Just people who are feeling like, what is my purpose? Why bother? Why be ambitious? Why work hard? I mean, I, I read about this movement in the New York Times where it was just called, I forget the name of it, but it was just called kind of, I don't know, let's say it's called doing, where you wouldn't have any ambition. You would just be in the moment and go from one thing to the next throughout your day, being very aware, but there wasn't any end goal, you know? And I think having something to strive for, having a passion and having an ambition is important and it's really hard to find. But I think if young people come and see what you can do, also the illustration of a woman and a man, if you're in that type of relationship or any relationship, a woman and a woman, a man and a man, but the equality of the relationship, not only of the heart, but of the mind that people can engage intellectually. And that's a different kind of love affair, but that they can support each other. And this was like a, a love affair and kind of a friend affair or, or an intellectual affair, but seeing that they work together, they were together you know, 17 years, the heart of the affair was 11, I believe, but they were working side by side, supporting one another. Um, he's the one who really got her 
paper on fire. They, they did an experiment together and they disagreed and she submitted secretively. And then he, it was his idea to have all the runners up published. And she happened to benefit from that because he was a runner up and so was she. She submitted anonymously and then she became known. So he was, you know, on her side until he got jealous, but, but just, it's also illustrates how to have a, have a wonderful, like a magical relationship, you know, for a longer period of time, usually the magic wears off maybe after a couple of years or so. So all those things, that's, that's who I really hope. And, and then of course, to inspire everybody to, to get on, it's never too late to pursue something and pursue it well and work hard, you know? Somebody who works really hard, I, I so admire. Amen to that. Yeah. Amy, who do you hope have access to the show? Men. <laughs> oh, Men. that is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, but I can't argue with that based on everything I've But heard why, of. Amy? Why? Well, for, you know, obviously, I, I hope everybody has access to this show, but if we could talk for just a second without getting too far off the mark here. If I use the term patriarchy, that is a big umbrella term in my mind for any kind of inequality, for an imbalance in power, for racism, for all, all of those things that are, that are toxins in our system. Not men, men are not the toxin, patriarchy is so damaging to men, I think, maybe more, even more so to women. So this is not just about girl power, which I think is a product of patriarchy. I think this is about human, like Kathy said, the, the, the parity, the equanimity between the, in particular, these two characters, Emily and Voltaire, but as a, as a model for how humans can coexist and support each other and even fight and even, you know, have conflict and cause they have some doozy fights, don't they, Kathy? Mm. Um, these two people, but the, even the way that they fight is sort of grounded in, I trust you to handle the importance of what I'm feeling and, and what, what I'm saying, even when they say hurtful things to each other. So I, I, I'm hoping that that all of us who come to this play, who get to see this play, get a vision, a picture of what respect and and reverence for other human beings can look like. And yes, we need the next generation to do that, but I'm not giving up on my generation either or the older generations. I mean, I think we're all, we still have, we we still have, a, if we're still on this planet and we're still breathing, then there's more to be evolving. There's more evolving that needs to happen. And so I hope, I think this can help with that. I want to change things up now and I want to give our listeners a chance to get to know the two of you a little bit better and to hear more about your experience in the theater. And I want to start by asking what shows or playwrights or composers have inspired you or do you love? And Kathy, is it okay if I start with you on that? 
Oh, I, there's so many. I mean, I'm a big fan of Arthur Miller, but he's an old schooler, I guess, by now. And Tennessee Williams and all the the guys who fought through the blacklisting time and their shows became a parable for, you know, or used, they were fighting for all sorts of rights and equalities, you know, through their, through their plays. But I, I love a, a family drama that is then held to be kind of a metaphor for how we live our lives. You know, that, that what's happening within the family is kind of mirroring what's happening universally. And so I, I like their writing a lot. In terms of composers, recently I'm into Baroque music. <laughs> We're listening to a lot of French Baroque music and just Baroque music in general and looking at Baroque dance for this piece. So I'm loving like Lully and, and some of these other French composers. I just, I think the music's very sexy. I think it's very regal. I think it's, we're listening to opera. Did you know that Voltaire also wrote composition for opera, not just libretto? I mean, what else can the man, you know, what else could you possibly, he possibly undertake and, and do, but he scored opera. So I, 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 I'm enjoying that music right now. I enjoy all sorts of music, but I'm enjoying that, really enjoying that now. Those are, those are the playwrights just initially that I was inspired by. And then I, li I love Irish theater. I focused on that in my MFA, John Millington Singh, and then the contemporary Irish playwrights. My husband's Irish, so I think I'm also lean towards that. And I just directed The Night Alive by Connor McPherson. And so I just love, I don't know, there's a certain feel to the Irish literary world that is, the language is so rich and unique and the wit there's always this kind of laughter and light and darkness all together at once so and and god's always milling around somewhere you know so i <laughs> so I, I i love i love irish theater Connor mcpherson martin mcdonough and i love the old irish playwrights as well and then i've i've seen a lot of things but i just think it's going to get boring if i just list all the shows i've seen recently i saw Clyde's in uh, New Brunswick. A friend of mine just directed that. And that was a lot of fun. People, you know, ex-cons in, um, in a uh, diner kind of battling it out with an owner and it was kind of like the devil and how they kind of transcend their situation by creating beautiful food, beautiful diner food. And they just fantasize about the recipes that would make the most perfect meal. And they actually start to make them and their world starts to change. And so I thought that was a lot of fun. Yes, that was a beautiful piece. Yeah. Amy, what about you? What inspires you? Everything inspires me. Novels, fiction. I, I, I told someone recently, I read novels like uh, as self-help. <laughs> That's how I discover about what it means to be human, novels and plays and movies. And that's really what I'm about with Duende too, is that, you know, the idea is that theater, theater that doesn't help us understand what it means to be human isn't any use to me. When I was artistic director of a theater in Indianapolis, the, the buzzword at that time in that area was very much a lot of, a lot of theaters were talking about theater that makes you think. And I was like, screw that. I'm, I'm not interested in theater that make, I can think plenty on my own. If it doesn't make me feel something or 
grow in some way or laugh really hard or weep, then I'm, I am, I can read a book on physics. I don't need to, you know, Mm. I'll never get away from Shakespeare and I'll never get to the bottom of Shakespeare and I'll never get burned out on Shakespeare because it's, it's this feast that this banquet of human experience and in the container of language strong enough to handle the heights and depths of human experience that I will probably be obsessed with the rest of my life. So, and the more stripped down a production is, whether it's Shakespeare or anything, the more I seem to be moved by it when, when things are really focused on the, the bones of whatever the thing is. And for that reason, I tend to see a lot of dance shows. I love, I'm a, I'm a dancer by training and I get very inspired in my theater work by going, by watching dance, really great dance. I I just saw Pina Bosch's show Aqua at BAM and a couple of weeks ago is probably the most recent thing that I saw. And I don't know exactly how that translation happens in my brain when I see a dance show and then I get ideas about how to play a scene or whatever, but it, that's, it goes in viscerally for me and then makes its way up to my head. Everything I have seen at BAM, it seems like, has blown me away since I moved to New York. I don't think I've seen anything at BAM that I didn't walk out of there going, oh, oh. (laughs) And the, the production that sticks with me in the last year is James McAvoy's Cyrano. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it wasn't his Cyrano, he played Cyrano, but that, that script and that production and him just, I I can't stop thinking about it. And then there's a production that came up for me recently. I actually saw it when I first moved to New York six years ago, and it's apparently going on right now. You asked what people could see right now, again, at the McKittrick hotel where sleep no more plays Mm -hmm. down in their pub. They have a little sort of theater venue and it's the National Theater of Scotland's production of The Strange Undoing of Prudentia Hart. Have you seen it? I have not, but I've heard about it and I've, I need to go see it. Five actors. Yeah. It's, it's storytelling. It's music. It's in a pub. They circulate through the pub. There's no set. It's so alive and so riveting and funny and scary because the, the devil is one of the characters and it's it's very Scottish in its story, you know, sort of barred storytelling legacy. And it's just, it's really alive. But yeah, that's the kind of stuff that, and then music, I, I have a very eclectic, I'm a singer song. I'm not a songwriter. My family is songwriters, but I'm a singer. So I like to, you know, play stuff on my, on my little ukes and piano and stuff and sing. But what I listen to is everything and uh, the things that, get me into grooves when I like working on a play like this. I listen to a lot of choral music, especially contemporary composers of choral. And I do listen to a lot of classical music, but I, I, I can't tell you like there's one thing that I put on. If you, if you shuffle through my iTunes, you'll think I'm, <laughs> I have multiple personalities. <laughs> One thing I can add is, speaking of music, Caroline Shaw, I went to the 92nd Street Y and she was touring with another band and her Pulitzer Prize winning Partita for Eight Voices inspired me to do something like kind of 
something similar. We have a composer who at intermission during the play, Amelie never leaves the stage. And so she's thinking. And so that music inspired me to kind of grab some of her thoughts, her written thoughts, her written formulas. And Amy has recorded them. And along with the composer who's composed music. So at, her, at intermission, you see Amy writing her Institutions of Physics, her book, and she she never leaves the stage and you and that, that was partially inspired by uh, Partita, Carolyn Shaw's music. It's kind of a synthesis of Amy's voice, Amy's thought, you know, Amelie's thoughts, uh, Amy's actually singing and also acting and writing and thinking. That's amazing. What is your favorite part about working in the theater? Amy, can I start with you on that? The company, the other the other people i mean you can't do theater alone <laughs> and the collaborative process as as difficult as it can be the the bonds that you make i think especially among actors that's pretty huge for me i spend a lot of time alone right now in my life and so i love being in rehearsal because i'm not i, do, I don't ever feel alone so yeah i would say and and the way that actors support each other on and off stage, I wish all of our relationships were like that. Amen. And there's also a courtesy. I, I learned this when I was doing theater with young people a lot and my children were raised in the theater and they've commented on it, but there's a, there's a courtesy and sort of a code of manners. What did they call it in medieval times with the, the code of, like when knights would fight with each other, there was a there was a sort code of, of arms, no code of ethics, like a yeah. code of honor, chivalry, or yeah, chivalry. There's there's that in the theater world. Um, like for instance, my kids pointed this out when they were quite little, and I I never forgot it. But like when the stage manager comes back and says five minutes to places, and everyone says thank you five, that there's a response. There's a there's, there are manners built into the theater process that that is based in courtesy and respect respect for you know what everybody does. Like I have a respect for the stage manager's job, and their stage manager has a respect for my job, and and we have a respect for the light lighting designer's job. And there's I love that, and I I wish that were true in every work environment and every relationship and every family system. Yes. Kathy, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? I also like the company of others. And I really like the world of imagination and the world of stories and the ability to go back to kind of a childlike state and imagine what would happen in this moment and then kind of paint it on the stage for me as a director, you know, to have the ability to be around other people who are willing to be silly and laugh and fall and make fools of themselves and cry and find great joy. And we don't obviously get to do that you know, every day. So when you're rehearsing, you get to do, you get to enter that world. And I, I think it's a love of the, um, the, the world of imagination and the world of storytelling. And then of also the camaraderie. I mean, 
For me, it's like you have a little family. And then what's hard for me is that you have a little family for, you know, for me, my job is really, I'm front loaded. I have to really come in with a vision. I have to do my research and I have to really do all my work at the top, you know, in rehearsal along with the actors. And then they, I have to pass the ball over to them and they have to trust that, you know, they're in good shape to move forward and they continue to grow without me. That That's hard, you know, for the director to, to, and that's kind of where the actors, you know, next trajectory is. So it, it is hard to come together though and have this family and then you move on from one family, you know, to the next. That's the hard thing about it to say goodbye to it. But, but yeah, so I, and I, and I do think, I just think having a childlike, you know, don't forget that childlike imaginative state, which I think I still live in. And it's so strong for me. And I hope that everybody is, has that ability to tap into that, you know, and I think you do when you go see a show or create a show or listen to music, you know, you're always kind of going back to that primal need. Yes. Well, as we wrap up here, I'm excited to ask my favorite question, which is, what is your favorite theater memory? I used to see a lot of Broadway. My mother was an actress and a director and we lived in Dover, Delaware. And I was like super young and we used to, my dad worked for a company and we used to drive in and we used to get to stay at the Plaza hotel and we would always get to see. And I think my first memory is zero Mostel in Fiddler on the Roof, you know, and I don't know how old I was, but I remember like thinking I was going to fall asleep. And that was like, you know, and then the other one was a uh, man of La Mancha. I saw now his name is escaping me, but the original like man of La Mancha and the song, the I don't know, there, there were horses. They were, there were people, you know, pretending to be horses. There was kind of some sort of puppetry going on. And I forget the song, but like, just the moment, those two moments in the big Broadway stage, and then just like, oh my God, the whole world could do anything and we could be anywhere. We're, we're in heaven here. You know, just, just the songs kind of making your heart soar. And yeah, it was just very moving to see those two shows. Wow. And then all the others after that. But I remember being really little and just going, oh, I'm going to fall asleep. And then I was just wide awake all, you know, for the whole night. So excited. That is amazing. Amy, what about you? I have so many, but I, I think I have to say it's my, I don't know that it was my first trip to New York, but it was my first Broadway show. I was 10. My parent, I was here for some reason with my parents alone, not with, without my brother and sister. And I don't know why they weren't here, but my dad knew somebody who got us tickets in the third row orchestra, right in front of the stage for Annie. And it wasn't the original cast, but it was the I think it was the second cast. I remember Sarah Jessica Parker was one of the orphans. <laughs> she was Pepper. And I remember what I knew the music because I had the record at home. That's called, that's an LP for those of you born after. <laughs> I, I had the record at home and I knew it backwards and forwards. So I knew the music and I was just sitting there watching this and this sense of peace for lack of a better term. It was, it was excitement. I was very excited to be there, but it was probably somewhere in the second act. And this, it was like a light, a warm light poured over me. And I suddenly knew, oh, that's who I am. That that's not what I want to do. That's who I am. I'm an actor. 
And then after that show, that that theater memory is a whole evening. My parents took me to Mama Leone's, which doesn't isn't here anymore, but it was a big Italian restaurant after theater kind of place, Midtown. And there was a strolling violinist walking around the restaurant and it was so late and I was so tired, but I was still so revved up from the show. And they had these big upholstered chairs, I remember, like dining chairs. And the violinist came to our table and said to me, little perky blonde 10-year-old, do you have any requests? Is there anything that you'd like to hear? And I said, yes, tomorrow from Annie. And he sort of off the cuff said, well, I'll play it if you sing it. I said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So he played it and I sang it. And my dad, I remember encouraging, this is, is so not my dad's mode, but for whatever reason, he told me to get up, stand up on the chair so everyone could see me. And I sang to the whole restaurant, Yay. Annie, at the top of my lungs, and everybody applauded me. And and then they took us back to the hotel in a carriage, a horse ride carriage, oh. and it started snowing. Oh. And I fell asleep between my parents. So that's my, that's the whole theater memory. It's like a fairy tale theater beginning of my life in the theater. That is a Hallmark movie right there. It totally is. It's so it's so romantic. It's stupid. It's it's dumb. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what wonderful yeah. memories you both have shared. Thank you so much for those. Sure. It's incredible. Are there any other productions or projects either of you have coming on the pipeline? We might be able to plug for you. I don't. I I I'm directing in Wisconsin at a theater much later in the year, but. And Duende will probably go to sleep for the rest of this year, but I have some small film projects that I want to do through Duende upcoming. And yeah, I think I'm going to, I don't know what's going to happen after this play. Probably going to go to Good my things. aunt and, and garden for a little while. Ooh, I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm directing a show for our American theater group in New Jersey and it's the right to be forgotten by Sharon Rothstein, and I'm going to be directing that, rehearsing that in May, and that will go up June 18th in New Jersey at two different theaters. And if you ask me what those theaters are, I'm going to have to look those up. So I'm going to sound like an idiot. <laughs> um, but it's an interesting play about the internet, how we portray ourselves on social media, and what is the truth, and what is not, and can we alter our destinies via, you know, our images via online, you know, project, projecting ourselves online. So, and it's a lot of twists and turns. It doesn't turn out how you think it's going to turn out. So, but there's two strong female characters and a very diverse cast. So I'm excited. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Well, finally, if our listeners want to get more information about Lauren Gunderson's Amelie, or about either of you, maybe they want to reach out to you. How can they do so? I have a website, kathygailmcgowan.com. And then there's a contact link right there. So it's Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, Gail, G-A-I-L, McGowan, M-A-C-G-O-W-A-N. And yes, definitely that, that goes directly to me. I also have a website. Thank you for saying that because I forgot for a minute that I have a website. It's and it's amymichelleartist.com, amymichelleartist.com. And there's a way to contact me on there as well. And I just wanna, I do wanna highlight for a second 
that I mean, Duende is female led and it's it's basically my my brain child, but this show in particular, we were very mindful of building a mostly female creative team. So with the exception of our composer, Ian McNally, who's wonderful. Do we have other men, Kathy, in our- Sean Kiley is also doing sound. And, And of course the two men in our cast, this is a pretty much female driven show. Amazing. Which felt important for this for this play. Yes. Amy, Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing this incredible, incredible story and your incredible stories as well. I really appreciate it. I am looking forward to seeing the show. Yay. And I can't wait to see what else comes from you two. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was really fun. My guests today have been the producer and lead actress, Amy Michelle Gaither, and the director, Kathy Gail McGowan, who are part of Duende Productions' latest show, Lauren Gunderson's Emily, La Marquise du Châtelet Defends Her Life Tonight. It's running April 6th through the 30th at the Flea Theater, and you can get your tickets and more information at eventbrite.com Or more importantly, head on over to duendeproduction.org. There you can also get more information about the production company and check out their links to social media so you can stay up to date with all their amazing upcoming productions. We also have the websites for our two guests and we'll be posting those on the episode description and on our social media. But you do not want to miss out on this incredible story about a figure in history that I didn't know about. So make sure you check out this amazing show playing downtown New York, April 6th through the 30th. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. <laughs>